All right, let's turn together to Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. And tonight we'll be looking together at verses 19 through 24. Uh, Matthew chapter number 6, verses 19 through 24. And we will consider the subject this evening of treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Uh, Our Lord, as He has been instructing the disciples, uh, He has taught them many things. Uh, Specifically here in chapter number 6, He has taught them about giving, He's taught them about prayer, and He's taught them about fasting. And so it only seems natural uh, that He would now transition or segue into a particular subject that deals with uh, where our eyes are focused or what is our life's aim. Uh, We see in these verses, beginning in verse 19 through 24, uh, very familiar uh, expressions for many of us, I would say. Uh, It is where we uh, hear and we even see in verse number uh, 20, uh, 21 rather, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, In verse 20, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Uh, Really, there is a subject that is being dealt with here that the word or the phrase does not appear, uh, but it's the expression or the word worldliness or worldly-mindedness. When we think about worldly-minded, oftentimes we don't think about how worldly-mindedness uh, is not something that's just based upon uh, what we might say is sinful things in of themselves, but worldly-mindedness is having an eye or an aim focused on here instead of eternity. Uh, it is the uh, form of worldliness uh, that looks upon what's best now, what's best in this life. Uh, it is taking pleasure and having confidence in things of this earth instead of having confidence in the things which are above. Uh, Jesus is very clearly uh, counseling and teaching and preaching here that in reality, the best things, the greatest source of our joy and the glories should not be of this world, but should be those things which are not seen with human eyes, but they are eternal. Uh, Where is your happiness? Where is your joy? Is it in the treasures of earth or the treasures in heaven? And that's really what Jesus has in mind here. What are those treasures in heaven? Uh, It is uh, often debated about what these treasures are. and, And the question always comes up, how do I lay up for myself treasure in heaven? When I'm told in verse 19... I'm not supposed to lay up treasures upon earth. So there is this uh, very clear dividing line between laying up and laying not. So Jesus is going to deal with that particular idea. Uh, To be worldly minded um, is also uh, to not be familiar or cognizant of what we're comparing it to. Uh, If I compare anything of this life to the glory of heaven, there is no comparison. If I compare anything in this life to the glories of Christ, 
there is no comparison. Uh, I, I can find joy, I can find some satisfaction in some things the world offers, but that should not be my aim. And that's really what Jesus has in view here. Uh, our greatest source of happiness, our greatest source of joy is for that which is above, not for that which is below. Uh, so uh, the worldly man, a man who is worldly-minded, all of his reasonings, all of his actions are based upon laying up treasures here. Uh, that's the goal and that's the aim of most of humanity. Most of humanity is set with the goal of I want to acquire and get as much as I can get here, and they don't stop to think about treasures in heaven. But treasures in heaven are the very things in which Jesus says, this is what you should be laying up. Uh, now, Jesus is going to use a couple of illustrations. I'm giving you a 30,000 foot view right now. He's going to give us illustrations that use the eye and also use servants and masters. Both of those principles are meant to show us and illustrate to us the difference between laying up treasures in heaven and not laying up treasures here on earth. What does God really require of his people? Well, we are told that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. That's the first great commandment. Uh, we're not supposed to love God with part of our heart, with a divided heart. We're supposed to love him with all of our heart. Uh, it's very clear about what he means there. So to have a divided heart or a heart that's trying to lay up treasure in both places would mean that I have a divided heart. Uh, I cannot, well, he'll go on and show us, I cannot have two masters. I can't serve two and only have my aim on one. And so very, 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 very strong uh, words in which Jesus uses here. So let's look at these verses beginning there in verse 19. And we'll look at the negative first where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. So notice that phrase, lay not up for yourselves treasures. Now, when we think about treasures, uh, there's a lot of things that will come to our mind depending on who we are. Uh, what's a treasure to someone may not be as big of a treasure to another. But treasures are an indication or a picture of wealth. Now, among the people in Jesus' day, uh, treasures often included what they wore. As a matter of fact, clothing, uh, how many changes of raiment, the, the Bible often uses that expression, raiment, as well as gold, silver, gems, wine, lands, and even oil were all indicators of a person who had treasures on earth. A person who had a great number of changes of clothing uh, was considered to be somebody who had treasures. Uh, but it could simply also mean an abundance of anything that adds to either the outward appearance of our life or adding comfort to life. Now, many in Jesus' day, and I think the Pharisees fell into this category in some respects, they delighted in their outward appearance. It was very important what they looked like. 
Remember we talked about fasting last week and how it would have been a strange thing to see a Pharisee disfigured because of how their appearance was so important to them. Uh, They were also known for wearing costly garments. Their raiments were in fact uh, beautiful treasures. Uh, they were often ornamented. They, they, had, uh, they had shiny things on them. They were certainly something to see. Um, there's a couple of illustrations in Scripture where we see uh, the importance of raiment and the clothing. And I'm going somewhere with this, so just bear with me. Uh, notice Genesis 45.22. Genesis 45.22. And, and notice the emphasis here uh, that Joseph gives uh, to uh, raiment. Uh, in Genesis 45, verse 22, uh, Joseph, as he's giving, uh, it says, to all of them, he gave each man changes of raiment. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. Raiment is a, was a treasure. It was something that was costly. Uh, it was something uh, to, 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 to have possession of. Uh, in Joshua 7.21, uh, Achan coveted. He coveted after a Babylonian garment. And we also see in Judges 14, if you'd like to turn there, Judges 14, verse 12. Again, this emphasis here on the raiment. Uh, Samson, this is the story of Samson. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If you can certainly declare it me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 change of garments. Now you and I may look at that and say, what's the big deal about 30 changes of garments? Well, in the biblical times, that was a treasure. Which the reason that I'm making such an emphasis on that is because that what gives us the context of why Jesus mentions moths. Moths are the very things in which destroy raiment. Now, I don't know about you, but for years and years and years, when I would just casually read the Bible, I would not even stop and think, why is Jesus mentioning moths? I could understand rust, Because I thought, well, treasures, metals, precious gold, silver. But where does the moth come in? The moth comes in because even in Jesus' day, a treasure was a raiment. Clothing was a treasure. And so when we understand, that accounts for the use of the word moth. So when we speak of wealth or we speak of treasures... Uh, We often think of gold, we think of silver, we think of lands, we think of houses. But understand something. When the Jews, or even from other parts of the world, spoke of wealth, their first thought was what's on display. What you see. Raiment clothing was a great treasure and very important to them. Uh, That was an essential part was having dress, outward clothing, that demonstrated that you were wealthy. So it is very important. This moth, as you know, is an extremely small insect that once it finds its way into clothing and garments, will absolutely destroy it. I remember, and I didn't even know this had happened, and this is when we were out on the East Coast, out in New England, I went to pull a shirt out of a drawer one day 
And when I pulled that shirt out, it was covered in holes. I had no idea that moth was there. I had no idea that the clothing was being destroyed. But I picked up the shirt and there were just holes all over it. And I was, came to the conclusion that that had to have been a moth that was inside. And it's an illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. He said, you that are laying up treasures in this life, you that are emphasizing your outward raiment, your outward clothing, he said, you realize this is going to be eaten away. The moth is going to destroy even the most beautiful garment. So what is the value in laying up treasures here in this earth? And as far as their silver and their gold, it would rust. It would be carried away by the thief. There's a couple of scriptures that deal with this particular thought. Proverbs 23, 4. Proverbs 23, 4. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Now please remember, the Bible does not say that money is evil and that money is wicked. But rather, what does it say? The love of. All right? So my labor is not to be rich. That's not why I'm supposed to be laboring, is to be rich. Luke 18, verses 24, and then drop down to verse 35. Luke 18, verse 24. Jesus is speaking to this rich young ruler as he's often known as. It says, and when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. Notice it doesn't say that rich people will not enter the kingdom of God, but he uses the phrase hardly, which means it's a difficult thing to do. Why? Because once the earthly man who has his mind set upon riches, he will often get his eyes off of the eternal things. That's really what's in view here. Down in verse 35 of that same chapter, we see that um, this, this, uh, this, this healing of a man, this blind man, uh, says comes to pass that he was some nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the way begging. Uh, this, this man had absolutely nothing. He had nothing, but yet he desired and had a, a thirst that Jesus would help him. So this illustrates this picture of where we're going with what Jesus is talking about. He's, in other words, don't lay out your life for the gathering of wealth. Uh, this would be a step down for children of a heavenly kingdom. Uh, it, it's, if, if you accumulate money, you accumulate raiment, uh, your treasures, mark it down, be certain of this, uh, they will be prone to moths. They will be prone to rust. And you will also be subjected to thieves. Now, honestly, Jesus is saying, don't, don't lay up these things for that purpose. Again, he's not saying don't have clothing. He's not saying don't have anything. He's, this isn't the call that said every believer should be poor. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. But what he is saying is that should not be your aim in life. 
My aim in life should not be accumulate as much wealth as I can accumulate. It shouldn't be to have the greatest of all things. It often bothers me personally when I see somebody say about somebody who does have something nice, uh, they say something like, boy, they, they must not really love God. Um, I will tell you that's, a, that's an unfair accusation. Uh, just because somebody has something nice doesn't mean that that's where their focus is. And it doesn't mean that believers can't have something nice. Uh, there are people that believe every believer should be a, a poor person. And I don't think that's scripturally. I think Paul even himself would say he just learned how to be content whatever his state he was in. If I'm poor, I'm content. If I'm rich, I'm content. doesn't matter if I'm in prison or out of prison. I'm still content. Because his aim in life was God. His aim in life was treasures in heaven, not treasures on this earth. Truly, to live for the sake of growing rich in this life, knowing that one day uh, you are going to die, and that will all have been for nothing. So instead, he says in verse 20 back in our text, that we should instead lay up treasures in heaven. Again, using the same illustration, where moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. It's the exact opposite. The treasures in heaven are not subjected to the moth, they're not subjected to the rust, and they're not subjected to thieves. Your eternal joy and your eternal happiness is in the things in heaven, not the things in earth. Jesus clearly teaching here, don't exhaust your life and spend all of your days in providing for the life here, but let your chief aim be preparing for eternity. It's hard to prepare for something that we've never seen yet. It's hard to prepare for something that we've never actually been there yet. But yet, you know, people prepare all their life for this thing called retirement, right? And they tell you when you're very young, start preparing for retirement. And whatever age that is, 65, 70, whatever the case is, 72 and a half, whatever it is, prepare for retirement. Yet, Jesus here is saying, let your chief aim be eternity. Absolutely nothing corrupts that treasure. Nothing destroys it. No enemies can steal it. To have treasure in heaven is to possess evidence that the joys and happiness of heaven will in fact be ours. Paul wrote about being heirs of God. Paul wrote about being joint heirs with Christ. That is an inheritance that the Bible says is incorruptible, undefiled, and what? It fades not away. Now notice he makes mention of the fact of the heart. And there is, the seat, there is the seat of the problem. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart or the affections will be fixed on whatever you treasure the most. Whatever's most important to you right now, or whatever you treasure the most, that's where your heart will be found. So in order to lay up treasures in heaven, he's talking about something here about regulating our heart, controlling our heart, doing, doing something that we make sure that what we treasure is the right thing. 
the right object. Now we sit here in a church on Wednesday night and the answer to that question obviously is very easy. Well, of course, our heart and our aim should be set on Jesus Christ and His glory. But that's not just a sermon to fill up 35, 40 minutes, right? That's, that's what the whole aim of our life is to be, is treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. But do you understand how, how extreme the pressure is in this life to lay up for yourselves in this life? Again, he's not saying that you should not have money and you shouldn't prepare to live. It would be irresponsible to not provide for your family. <laughs> It'd be irresponsible to have a family and not provide for them knowing that you could provide. He's not talking about that at all. He's saying, what's your chief aim? What is your aim in life? What's the object or the great attachment? Our desires and, all of, and our efforts should go towards heavenly things. They're not liable to decay, to corruption. They can't be stolen from us. These earthly possessions that we do have, those ought to be used for God's glory. So let's say God does, and I, I don't like to use this term because we often associate with a blessing and money, but if God gives you money, you ought to use it for God's glory. You ought to use it to further the kingdom of God. Now again, that doesn't mean you let your family starve. But you ought to use it for God's glory. Why? Because ultimately God is the one that gave that to you in the first place. Whatever we give to the poor, whatever we give to those in need, whatever we give to the work of the Lord, uh, it is, it, it is, it's a treasure in heaven. Nobody may know anything about it. Remember, Jesus taught us about how we give. Remember back in the first four verses of this chapter, we don't give to be seen. This is part of laying up treasures in heaven. I'm not giving so that you'll be impressed. You don't give so that I'll be impressed. We don't give so that we can announce it and put it on a giant billboard somewhere or put it all over a web page. We do it because our aim is the glory of Christ. Whether we're fully aware, I hope we are as believers tonight, uh, heaven is a real place that believers are really going to. You know, sometimes we talk about things for so long, I'm not sure we actually believe it. We actually start thinking, well, wait a minute. It's, you know, we, we become like uh, the people what Peter wrote about who said, where's the promise of his coming? We get so comfortable in this life, we begin to say, is it really a heaven? Now, again, I hope I'm speaking hypothetically. We believe there's a heaven, but it's the whole principle of becoming earthly-minded. We're so worldly-minded that we, we forget about the reality that we are, we are one breath away from eternity. And yet, our substance, our possessions, we ought to remember that whatever God gives us here uh, can be used for treasures in heaven. Again, he's not talking about the more you give, the more likely you'll be saved. He's not talking about works-based salvation. This is just an outflow of what a believer already does. So he's got something in mind here. Our aim, our goal. Verse 21, that is in fact our 
motive. Our motive is our heart must go in the direction of that which we count the most precious. If your heart is aimed at the things of this world, that's what's most precious to you. If it's aimed toward the things of God and Christ's glory, that's what's most precious to you. Now, get a bunch of believers in a room and ask them, what is the most important thing to you? And almost every person to an individual will say, well, Christ's glory is. But is it really? Is that really what my chief aim of life is? And I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. It, it isn't just this, hey, when I'm with the disciples, when I ask you what's your chief aim in life, you say, my glory. It, it's really what's your everyday life. You know, a church like ours, we have such a small amount of time where we're actually together in corporate worship. I mean, there's a very, it, really in the scope of an entire seven-day week, we have very, very little time together. And in that time we have together, it would be very easy for us to get the idea of what we really are or what's most important. But remember, Jesus is the only one who actually sees where our heart is really fixated on. He's the only one that truly knows this is what you make most important. Wherever we place our thoughts is where our heart is. If we are taken in by the riches of this world and that's our most important thing, that's where our heart is. But if our aim flies in the direction of Christ and His glory, that's where our heart will be. That's what we'll treasure the most is Jesus Christ and His glory. And then Jesus gives this illustration in verse 22. Again, the context is the same. He's not changed subjects here. Verse 22, he says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. Now what he doesn't mean, he's not talking about a one-eyed person. Okay? He's not talking about a single one-eyed person. He's talking about an eye that has a single focus and is looking in one direction and has one aim. This is the very sentiment of what he just said about fixing the affections on heavenly things. He uses the eyes as an example to show where the heart is. So he gives this illustration by referring to the eye. Now, here's something you and I take for granted. When your eyesight works, when you see fine, when you're not having a problem with your eye, you don't think twice about how important your eyes are. Now, if you're a contact wearer like I am, put a speck in one of those contacts and see if that, will not, if that will be the most aggravating thing that you've ever known in your whole life. And you'll take that contact out and you'll think it's some big thing in there and no, sometimes you can't even see it. It's just a speck. But I'm telling you, it messes up your entire focus. You can't see, everything's blurry, and what Jesus is talking about here, he's given the example of when an eye is healthy, to have a single focus, it's clear and it's plain. If you've ever watched a person who has something wrong with their eyes, if you've ever seen this, their eyes are unable to fix on one particular object. They often move back and forth. You know, part of what that doctor does when he's flashing that light in your eyes too has a little bit to do with health of your eyes. 
But think about that for a moment. We don't think about the health of our eyes as long as they're working. And we often don't think about the health of our heart. Is it really divided or is it really single focus towards God until maybe it's not working? But to have our eyesight become, our eyes to become diseased, things are no longer clearly seen. Uh, even your eyesight determines the motion of your body. Truly, uh, there are certain things that if you're not able to see, if you can't fix your eye upon something, uh, you actually become dizzy, you actually will fall. It, it is amazing how much our eyesight keeps us in the right direction. I bet you didn't think about that today. I bet you didn't think today, boy, I'm glad I got eyesight that keeps me in the right direction. But that's what the illustration is here. That's what he's talking about. He's putting all these things together into things we can understand. I can understand fixing my eyes on something. If, if I was to say, everybody turn around and look at the clock. We all look at it and fixate on it. Say, look at the clock. We all see it. We all can see the same thing. But here, Jesus is saying in order that our conduct would be right, it's important that our eyes be fixed on the right things. And what is the things he's talking about? Treasures in heaven. Now the eye is often referred to in Scripture as having an eye of faith. An eye of faith means to have an eye that is steady and unwavering. Single means devoted to one object. Not double. Not triple. But look what he says is the result. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Your conduct, if your eye is right, your, your focus is right, your aim is right, your conduct will be right. Truly, all that is needful to direct the body is that the eye is fixed in the right places. It doesn't require any other light. Now remember, Jesus is talking in spiritual terms here. Uh, it is needful that the eye is the very thing that directs our soul. Our conduct is determined about where our eyes are fixated upon. So that the eye of faith is to be fixed on heaven so that all of our affections are fixed on heaven. I have a single focus. He says, if therefore the light is in thee, that word light also signifies the mind the principles of our soul, if that's dark, if, if it's dark, what do we have? We have nothing. The light of the body is the guide, the eye. Imagine, again, what happens if you're in a, a room that is full of light one minute and then is dark the next minute. I've, I've listened to people who, who have, during testimonies, who have said, who were not born blind, but they developed some kind of a, a, an illness or a disease, and they became blind sometime in light. And I, 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 there was a, when I was a little boy, there was, a, there was these three sisters that all three of them were blind. And we would go in a church van, and we would, I occasionally would get to ride and pick them up. 
And one or two of them were, was blind from birth, and one of them became blind. It was some kind of an eye thing that almost all of them had, and one of them had had sight at one point. And I can still remember either her saying it or somebody telling me she said it. Well, it was a long time ago. I was a little boy a long time ago. Talking about how dark everything is. Now, the only perspective she had of dark is because she once had light. And you think about somebody who's blind, you think, well, it's always dark. But she would remark how very, very dark being blind is. Because she had a perspective of what light actually was. If our eyes are darkened here, he's not talking about going blind, but he is talking about an eye that's not fixed on heaven is an eye that is dark. Imagine having the light and yet then finding yourself in darkness. There is nothing, again, in the context, Jesus is saying that the treasures of this earth will have a propensity to darken your mind, to obscure the view of God. Again, he's not saying you can't have money. He's not saying you can't have nice things. He's not saying that at all. But he says take care and be sure that that's not your aim. It brings us to obscurity. We're not able to see. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? The motive is the eye of the soul. And if it's clear, the whole character is going to be right. But if our eye is darkened, it's not fixed on the right thing, it becomes corrupt. If we don't see things in a proper manner, if we don't see things in a proper light, we might actually live in sin and think we're doing something that's okay. A man should live as if he's in the light. It is not by coincidence that Jesus uses the illustrations of light and dark. He uses light for the spiritual goodness and he uses the darkness as spiritual, spiritual darkness. That's what it is. But imagine if our faith and our zeal for God, what if we're all living in a situation where we think we have a single-minded focus on God, but we're actually living in darkness? We're actually, we think our aim is right, but it's not. We are pretty good about having eyes and a heart that is truly divided, but we tell ourselves and justify it by saying, my heart's not divided. My single focus is God. My single focus is God's kingdom. My single focus is God's glory. How often, folks, have we deceived ourselves when that's really not the case? I think what Jesus has in mind here is this single eye to God's glory. Realizing that it is only God, it is only through Jesus Christ that my soul can be filled with light. It's only when I'm focused on Christ and Christ alone. We sing about Christ alone. We talk about Christ alone. We read about Christ alone. But if we truly believe that, that's our single focus in life. It's, it's God's glory. It's Jesus Christ. 
And then this last, illustra- this last illustration, again, is related. He uses now the illustration of two masters. No man can serve two masters, for either he will lo- hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Christ now proceeds to illustrate the necessity the necessity of laying up these treasures in heaven from a very well-known, established fact. Jesus doesn't say this might be. He says this is fact. No man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters at the same time. His affections, why? His affections, his obedience, are always going to be divided. That means at some point, he is going to fail in some aspect, to give all responsibility and all obedience to one at some point. He's going to love one. He's going to hate the other. He's going to be more interested in the, in the uh, obedience to one, and he's going to neglect the other. That is, folks, that's the law of human nature. If you put two people in front of you and you say both of these are your master, human nature is going to dictate to you, you are going to gravitate towards one of those more than the other, but you won't be able to serve them both equally in equal obedience and equal affection. It's impossible. It's human, it's, it's human nature. Why? What Jesus is teaching is that your supreme spiritual affections can only be fixed on one object. And that one object, Jesus himself is speaking and saying that the servant of God cannot at the same time obey him and seek treasures supremely on earth at the same time. In other words, you can't do both. You can't say Jesus Christ is my supreme affection, but also treasures on earth is my supreme affection. You can't do both. It's one or the other. They interfere. At some point, one will be that which has your affections. The other will just be simply forgotten and surrendered. He says it right there. He'll hate one, he'll love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other the law of human nature. And then he makes a very declarative, direct, sound statement. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon's another word that I just ignored for years. I never think about the moth, and I never really thought about what mammon was. Mammon is often, when you ask people what it is, the first thing they'll say is, it's money. But mammon actually had a deeper meaning than just money. That's what we use to illustrate something. I found this interesting. Mammon is a a word or a name that was given to an idol. That idol was an idol that was worshipped as the god of riches. So when we just read it and say, well, the principle is this, god and riches are money. No, Jesus was talking about a specific idol that was, the, it was an idol that was called mammon. And he's using this to illustrate. He was the God of riches. The Greeks had the same word the same, with a different name. Now, we don't know for sure if the Jews ever formally worshipped the idol, but they knew that that idol 
was associated with wealth. So the meaning that Jesus is saying here is you cannot serve the true God supremely and at the same time be supremely engaged in obtaining the riches of this world. You can't do them both. One is going to interfere with the other. Let me show you one illustration, Luke 16, verses 9 through 11. Jesus, again speaking here, he says, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, that ye may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. A very important piece of interpretation of Scripture if something is repeated, you really should take notice to it. This is the second time that Jesus now says you cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible to do it. You should not have a divided heart. So well, here's the conclusion. The Lord here is forbidding the division of our spiritual aim in life. You cannot have two master passions. You cannot have two objects of your greatest desire. It's impossible to serve both. At some point, the interest of the treasures of this world is going to interfere with the treasures in heaven. At some point, they are going to intersect. They're going to, they're going to intersect. They're going to be in conflict with each other. And you, at that point, would be forced to choose Somehow we have to get in our mind that the world in which we live is never going to come into agreement with God's kingdom. It's just never going to happen. We're never going to wake up one day and see a kingdom, a world that is single-minded focused on the things of God and His glory. But we really shouldn't be forced to choose. We should already have made the choice to say, listen, treasures in heaven is my single aim. I want Christ to be my single object of focus. Not to pursue after the things of this world as my grand theme in life. You cannot serve two masters. You can live for this world. You can choose to do it. But you can't live for this world and live for the world to come equally. You can't do them both. That's why we started by thinking worldly mindedness. You can't have them both ways. Really, truly, where God reigns, if God reigns in our heart, I know this, this, this goes over like a lead balloon for a lot of the modern church today, but wherever God reigns, something has to be given up. It, it just comes with it. Something is sacrificed. Something, something gives. But by way of an application for us, what a joy it would be to pursue only God's glory 
Imagine living a life that actually hates evil and loves God supremely. Imagine a life that despises that which is false in the world and only holds to that which is true. We are confronted with so much falsehood and lies and deception on a day-to-day basis, I'm not sure we even recognize it sometimes. We're being bombarded with that which is false. Look, don't get focused on the things that are false. Stay focused on God's glory. Stay focused on having a single aim for Jesus Christ. Even as the world grows darker and darker and the falsehoods grow deeper and deeper and further, have a single mind for the things of God. Stand for that which is right and have uncompromising convictions. Imagine if you just stood on the convictions of God's Word. Mammon here was given to show us the direct opposite of God. Mammon is a direct opposite of God. The God of riches isn't a God at all. But may today, may our desire be, as Jesus says, that wherever our treasure, wherever our heart is, that's where our treasure is, and may our treasure be Christ. May everything we desire to do be about Christ and His glory. Let's pray together. You can remain seated and we'll have a closing hymn together in just a moment. But let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for this text. And Lord, honestly before You tonight, You you continue to just speak to our hearts through the Spirit and remind us of just how clear Your Word is. Lord, I imagine we've all been guilty at some point in time of looking at these texts and justifying ourselves and saying, this isn't me, this isn't what I do. The Lord, may the Spirit convict us tonight that if our aim is not single, if our eyes are not fixed upon Christ and the glory of His kingdom and the glory of God, Lord, may we be brought to repentance. May we be brought to a place where we do have that single eye of faith. Lord, I realize how difficult it is to live in a world that is continually and is bombarding us with what we need to have, what we must have, and what's most important. But may we see here that what matters is not the things we can see here now, but the things which at this point in time, they're unseen. But one day, they will be sight. We will see them. And may we desire to live for these treasures in heaven. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this evening. Thank you for all that have made it out tonight and those that joined us by live stream. And Lord, may you continue to guide us and direct us through your spirit and may Christ truly be exalted in our lives. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let's stand and sing the hymn on page number 36. Page number 36.